0: Some decisions are bigger than others. I can remember remember in ancient times going on college visits, right, trying to figure out, um, you know, which college to attend. And yes, there was electricity when I went to college. But just to say, you know, it was a long time ago. But that was a big decision, you know, deciding what college to attend. Uh, some decisions are bigger than others. I couldn't tell you what I had for dinner on the 12th night I was in college. I don't know what I chose to eat it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, But what college I chose was a big deal. I can remember in 1999 a big decision when I asked Lindsay if she would marry me. And boy, she remembers that day. I can tell you that. Yes. Yes. A day of infamy in her life. Uh, (laughs) I win. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, yeah, that was, you know, that was a big one. All right. That was a big one. Okay. That was bigger. Uh, I do remember what I had for dinner that night. I don't remember what I had for dinner the next night. No idea. Some decisions are bigger than others. I remember when we decided to buy our first home. This was down in Florida. I remember that decision, you know, anal- you know painfully analyzing all the options and the market and the blah, 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 and all the you know, the ins and outs, and then literally losing feeling in my hand as I signed my name one million times, you know. But that was, that was a big one. That was a big one. I don't remember what I had for dinner the first night we were in that house. No idea. It was probably pizza, but I have no idea. I I couldn't tell you, right? Some decisions are bigger than others. This part of the Gospel of Matthew is all about considering how you respond to Jesus. Matthew describes for us the different ways people reacted to Christ. And people had to decide... What they thought about Jesus. At a certain point when you interacted with Jesus in his first advent as he taught, as he healed, there was a moment where you had to go, who is this guy? What are we actually dealing with here? And that decision, the decision of how to respond to Jesus, well, it's a big one. In fact, it's the biggest decision anyone will ever make. And so as we come to Matthew 12 this morning, we have to ask the question, well, what about me? How have I responded to Jesus? What do I believe about what he taught and what he did? Does my life bear out what I have believed about him? This this part of the word of God calls us to consider our response to Jesus the Messiah. And as it does so, we have an opportunity, an opportunity to maybe afresh, just consider, where do I stand spiritually? How am I doing in my pursuit of the Lord? In many ways, a passage like this in Matthew chapter 12, it functions like a line in the sand. And it's Jesus himself who draws it. And he says, let's go. You got to make up your mind. What do you think about me? Now, in the context here, uh, Matthew has described a couple of controversies where Jesus has corrected faulty thinking about the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. And so he's been confronting the hypocrisy and that law-keeping performance orientation of the Pharisees. And as he's done so, that culminated uh, in, in chapter 12, verses 18 to 21, with a quote from Isaiah 42, where Matthew says, Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, specifically the servant of Isaiah 42. The servant in Isaiah is God's agent for rescue. And so, wow, Jesus is the servant. Matthew makes it very clear. And then here we get to this next scene where there's this man who's afflicted by a demon, and then we see what unfolds and and how there's another call to respond to Jesus. Let's pick it up again in verse 22, though, and just see what happens here. So there Matthew writes in verse 22, "...then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and unable to speak, was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see." If we pause there, this is not surprising to us by this point of Matthew. There's been a ton of healing of both physical ailments and of demons. Jesus releasing people from the, the affliction of demons. And so here, Jesus does that. So now this guy can actually both speak and see. We might, if we were really savvy, we might think to Isaiah. And there are prophecies about the Messiah and Isaiah healing right people. And so we might connect some of the dots there. But one way or another, there's something serious going on here with Jesus uh, alleviating people's suffering, specifically from demon possession in this case. And there's no drama about it. Remember I told you when Jesus heals people from demons, it's not like he has to say the right thing or like dance on one foot and turn around or like get the right essential oil to pour on the guy or whatever. Like it's none of that. He just says, you're done. Boom, done. So here Jesus heals the guy. The demon's gone. That's it. So now he can speak and see. And the crowds have started to figure out the pattern. Like something's going on with Jesus. Verse 23, all the crowds, all the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? Now in your Bibles, son of David is capitalized. That's that's a title, right? And we see in that title, there's this expectation that people had, that Jews had in the first century That the Messiah would indeed be a descendant of David. Where does that come from? Well, that comes all the way back from 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you go back and look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's uh, the narrative of David's ministry, particularly his reign in 2 Samuel. And so in chapter 7, God tells David, I'm not going to allow you to build my temple. Your son Solomon will do that. But he promises David in chapter 7 that from him will come a descendant who will reign forever. And so there was this expectation. Every day after 2 Samuel 7, there was an expectation of when would the son of David, the promised one, who's the rescuer, right? When would that one come? And so there was apparently also expectation, although it's not made explicit in 2 Samuel 7, there was apparently also expectation that this son of David would not only reign but also would heal and deliver from demonic oppression. And so apparently the first century Jews, some of them had connected the dots between 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah and other messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. All that to say the crowds, you know, they're standing there and they're watching Jesus heal left and right. And then here this guy comes and he's demon afflicted and he can't speak. And and Jesus relieves the, the guy from the demon and now he can speak and, and, and he can see. And, and it's like, wow, this is, This has got to be it, right? The crowds are using their brains. This has got to be it. The son of David is here. Like, surely this is the son of David. Now, the way that question is phrased in verse 23, it expects a positive response. Could this be the son of David? Yes. Yes. It's a positive response, right? It's a positive response. If we just pause here, these first two verses, we learn very clearly from these verses that Jesus is The promised Messiah of the Old Testament. That Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Right here in close connection. We have Isaiah 42. We have 2 Samuel 7. right? We have the the narrative explanation. And crowds putting the pieces together. And I think that those pieces are being put together accurately. Matthew wants you to see that the crowds are right here. That Jesus is the expected son of David. Which means this. The story of Jesus is the story of the Bible. That it's, It is one story. We go all the way back, past 2 Samuel 7. You go all the way back to Genesis. And God creates the universe, and it's good, and He creates humanity, and we're good, and He creates this opportunity for us to serve Him. And although that is all created good, we choose sin. And in Genesis 3, sin enters the world, and now creation is broken. And from the, the second page of the Bible, right, We're looking for rescue, provision, uh, satisfaction, relief, healing, all of it, right? So we know why all bad things happen because of Genesis 3, and then there's this expectation. But man, right after, right after the fall, God promises, I'm going to be sending a, a redeemer. I'm sending a rescuer. That there will be a descendant of Adam and Eve who will crush the head of that serpent. And then we learn a little bit more. Later, we find out, oh, he's going to come through the family of Abraham. Right? And then we learn a little bit more. Oh, it's not just the family of Abraham. He's going to come through the kingly line of David. Right? So the story of the Old Testament continues right into the New Testament. And as Matthew explains Jesus' life and ministry and teaching, he says, you got to know this is the story. That thus, the story, what people are looking for. Forgiveness for sins, relief of guilt, relief of suffering, ultimate satisfaction, All this is one story, and it's the story of Jesus, the son of David, who is the Savior. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now, here's the question. The crowd intellectually starts to put the pieces together. Man, this could be the son of David. I think it might be. But intellectual knowledge that Jesus is the promised Messiah is not necessarily faith. And I don't want to spoil it for you. But before too long in Matthew, we're going to see that the crowd isn't exactly interested in following Jesus the Messiah. So they may say, oh yeah, Jesus is the promised Messiah. I could answer that question accurately on an exam, right? Multiple choice, right? Who is the, the promised Messiah? And if Jesus is on there, check the box. But the question is not, do I intellectually understand? The question is, do I believe? Have I decided that that means something for me? Jesus is the promised Messiah. We don't know if the crowd's faith is legit yet. Will they follow? Will they submit? Well, we'll find out in weeks to come. But it also just helps us in the moment realize that in actuality, because the Bible is one story, all of our hopes for rest, healing, satisfaction, prosperity, forgiveness, and belonging, all those hopes hinge on Jesus being the promised rescuer, right? They all hinge on that. And I don't care who you are this morning, you're looking for those things. Right We're desirous of those things. Did I ever tell you um, the story about the time I saw the Honda Civic pulling a trailer on the road trip? Listen, I love the Honda Civic. OK. The Honda Civic got me through seminary and college, for that matter. It is a glorious vehicle, OK? But just between you and me and the Internet, the Honda Civic was not designed to pull trailers. OK? All right? And you can go back, you have to read Japanese, but you can go back and look at those early documents they designed this car. It is not designed to pull a trailer. So we're on this road trip. I don't remember where, maybe it was on 81 or 95 or whatever. But we drive by, and I see this broken down Honda Civic with this massive U-Haul trailer, you know, stuck on the back of the thing. And I thought, yeah, well, that's about right. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, as glorious as the Civic is, it can't pull that trailer. You know what happens with us sometimes? We look for satisfaction, rest, healing, provision, forgiveness, belonging. We look for those things in places that weren't designed to give them to us. Money can't pull that trailer. You're looking for a sense of of achievement, fulfillment. Money can't pull that trailer. You're looking for true rest. Netflix can't pull that trailer. You know, you're looking for meaning and significance. Your Xbox or PS5 can't pull that trailer. You're looking for love, acceptance, and belonging. Your spouse is, is a good gift to you, but your spouse can't necessarily pull that trailer forever. They're not designed to. The son of David can. I mean, that's what's going on here. Matthew says, you got to see it. He's the servant of Isaiah 42. He's the son of David of 2 Samuel 7. He can pull that trailer. The stuff that you are looking for, the healing, the forgiveness, the prosperity, the peace, the rest, what you're looking for, you can find it. It is is out there, but it's only in Christ. There's one story that's being told, and it's his story. And we are a part of it, and it's by God's grace that we are a part of it. But the reality is, Jesus is the promised Messiah, and that means something for us. The crowd starts to see it. It's on, we're on the fence as to whether or not they're going to respond with faith. The Pharisees, the local religious leaders, see Jesus. They see evidence that he is the son of David. he's the promised Messiah. And for them, that is a problem. Some decisions are bigger than others. And they made a, a woeful decision here about how they were going to respond to Jesus. Watch what happens in verse 24. Okay, so the crowds are like, could this be the son of David? Okay, yeah, we think so. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Okay, so just pause there, verse 24. The Pharisees intentionally decide we cannot let Jesus get away with this. We see him relieving people's suffering, doing all this messianic stuff. And if we let this get out of hand, people are going to really start to think he's the Messiah. And he's going to get the control. He's going to be the authority. We're not the authority. And and we don't don't like the way he reads the Old Testament law anyway. He is a problem. And so how can we discredit his alleviating people's suffering, even demon-possessed people? And say, ah, we know what we'll do. The only way he's going to be able to alleviate people suffering with demons is because he's obviously working with Satan. It uses the term Beelzebul here, the ruler of demons. Beelzebul, is, it comes from an old Canaanite uh, term for one of the Baals that was worshipped in, in, um, in the Old Testament. But uh, it's a play on that, that title negatively. It's like Lord of the Filth is the idea, but... Um, but one way or another, by the time of the New Testament, that term gets used as a synonym for Satan, right? So Satan as the leader of demons who are fallen angels in rebellion against God. And you can see that clearly even sta- stated there in verse 24. He's Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So what the Pharisees say, people start to say, hey, is this guy the son of David? And it starts to trend. And the Pharisees are like, no, 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 no. He's doing this by satanic power, right? We got a problem. Verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he told them every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. No city or house divided against itself will stand. Verse 26, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Okay, pause here. Jesus here brings to bear some critical thinking skills. Like basic logic. He's like, listen, you know, a house divided against itself, a nation divided against itself, it's not going to stand. If your team is fighting against your team, you are not going to win. This is ridiculous. So he says, if Satan is, devi- is driving out Satan, then Satan, and listen, no offense, but Satan's dumb. If he's undoing his own work, if he's tearing down his own work, he's missed it. So verse 27, Jesus makes that logical conclusion. He says, if I drive out demons by Satan, by Beelzebul, well, then by whom do your sons drive them out? And he says, for this reason, they will be your judges. So there were other Jewish exorcists in the first century. And God had granted them, by his grace, a measure of success. And so Jesus says, well, if I'm driving out demons by Satan, what about the other other Jews who are doing this and being successful in it? Listen, the other exorcists, they weren't Jesus, right? So they, they, they didn't know what exactly they were doing. They prayed earnestly. I think they did sometimes dance on one foot and try to use essential oils and stuff. Like, they didn't know. But, but they, knew, they knew that God was good. They knew that God could re- alleviate the suffering. And I think genuinely they sought to help people and, like, pray that God would deliver them of these demons. And so they tried to do that. And sometimes God graciously granted their requests, and alleviated the demons. So if I'm one of those guys, okay, let's just say I'm one of those guys, and I'm known for being an exorcist in first century Israel, right? And this Jesus comes along, and he's just like, done, out, healed, boom, done, out, healed. Like, he's just doing that. If I'm seeing that, and I'm that exorcist, I'm not going to go, well, this guy, he's not the real deal, right? These guys are going to go, I don't know what to say about this guy, other than this is legit. This power over the demons is legitimate power. And what Jesus is doing. So this is why, why Jesus says that in verse 27. It's a little maybe confusing, isolated, but in context, it's really clear. He says, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? You're going to say all Jewish exorcists are demonic or satanic? No. For this reason, they, the exorcists, they will be your judges. The Pharisees come and they say, Jesus is doing this by satanic power. And Jesus says, well, your exorcists aren't going to think so. They're going to say, slow down, guys. Jesus is doing a very good thing here. It doesn't make any sense that Satan would cast out Satan. So if you say he's doing it by satanic power, the exorcist would say, ah, not so fast. We think you're wrong in your decision about Jesus. We think actually Jesus is doing something good. And isn't that exactly what's happening? Watch verse 28. And I think there's a... There's a contrast here. You could even reflect it in translation. You could say, but, or however. However, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Some decisions are bigger than others. Jesus says, okay, make your decision. Either I'm driving out demons by satanic power and I'm in some kind of weird Cooperation with Satan destroying his own work, which makes no sense. Either that's happening or, Jesus says, I am driving out demons by the power of the Spirit of God. If I'm driving out demons by the power of the Spirit of God, then guess what? The kingdom of God is here. Right now. In a way that it wasn't before Jesus arrived. So it's not, we're not saying God wasn't at work in the Old Testament. But all the Old Testament is promise and anticipation and looking forward to the rescuer finally coming. But when Jesus arrives, he arrives and announces the kingdom of God is here. And he proves it, what? By, by victoriously defeating demons and satanic power. That's one of the ways. He, he proves it by healing, physical illness. He proves it by his love and care for others, absolutely. But fundamentally, Jesus says, You've got to decide. Either I'm doing this by satanic power or I'm doing this by the Spirit of God. And if that's the case, then the kingdom of God is here. Some decisions are bigger than others. Jesus points out that he's beating up Satan. Verse 29. He says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Conclusion, Jesus says, I am plundering Satan's house. I beat up Satan. This is Matthew's version of my dad can beat up your dad. Okay? But, like, that's the deal. Like, that is the conclusion. No, seriously. You think Satan is this unstoppable force that is going around outside of, of God's authority, whatever. And Matthew says, no, no, no. Not only is Satan a created being who's finite, Satan has nothing to say to Jesus. Jesus casts out demons, no problem. Jesus does it by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit of God. Because his mission is the mission of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to rescue sinners. And by doing this as the Messiah, he is announcing his kingdom is here. You need to know this morning that Jesus is stronger than Satan. And that means that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is stronger than Satan. Listen, in our culture, we have a couple of, I think, um, sources of misinformation about Satan and demons. Okay, so I can give these to you, right, just to help you this morning. The the one and the most obvious is Hollywood, right? What does Hollywood know about Satan? Well, some might say, well, a lot. Yeah. Well, fair enough, but in actuality, yeah, not that much, because Hollywood's trying to sell tickets and make scary movies. If Satan has been beaten up and is no longer a genuine threat to a a believer, then those movies aren't very exciting. Are you with me? There's not much to it, right? So I have to make demons and Satan really scary and really powerful and really bad. And they are wicked and bad and they are trying to harm you, but they are not trying to make you float or make you vomit across the room or make you murder animals or whatever you see in those movies. What Satan is actually doing is trying to impact what you believe about God. It's an attack on your mind and your heart. That's what demons are are doing fundamentally. But Hollywood isn't selling that. And so they're selling this whole other version of Satan that makes people really scared about Satan. Jesus beat up Satan. He beats up the demons. He's totally victorious. It's not even a fight. And so I've told you before, and I'm I'm honestly, one of these days I'm going to actually do it, but the t-shirt you need to buy is Satan is a loser. Because he is. He's lost. Categorically, he's lost. Okay, so that's, that's one source of misinformation that you're going to see. The other source of misinformation comes from charismatic Christians. And I think a lot of these people are well-meaning, but they're just misinformed biblically. These are people who live their lives as Christians in constant fear of Satan and demons. Where they're like, oh, Satan's in this room, or Satan's in this house, or demons are in this room, and and, like, there's gonna, whatever, and, and there's like a fear there. You do not need to fear Satan. He is real, his attacks are real, but you do not need to live as a believer in fear of him, because Jesus is stronger. He's stronger. In fact, we see this point proven in multiple places, don't we, in the Gospels? You could go back in the Gospel of Matthew and just go back to Jesus' time, those 40 days in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan. Who won that one? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Relying on the Word of God, correcting faulty theology and a false reading of Scripture, Jesus wins that battle. Every interaction we have between Jesus and demons... As he alleviates people's suffering by healing them from these afflictions, it's never close. The demons aren't like, okay, we're going to roll up our sleeves and really going to give it to Jesus. They all know who he is, and they're quaking in their boots. They're scared. They ask permission, right? Send us into the pigs. Send us somewhere else. Like, they know he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And so Jesus wins all those battles. We read, in it's explicitly in, in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John, we find out that Judas, who betrays Jesus, that he does so by the instigation of Satan. That Satan put it in his heart and led him to that deception, right? And so, as Judas betrays Jesus and delivers him over to the authorities, that's a satanic attack. And that's why we often will say that Satan thought he won, because it worked, because Jesus was handed over to the authorities, and he was taken to be crucified. And in that moment... When Jesus hung on the cross, what seemed like victory for Satan was his greatest defeat. Because there on the cross, what does Jesus, the son of David, do? He provides rescue for you and me. And as he dies, his death was temporary. And so in the the most significant battle that was ever fought, In that moment, Jesus is victorious through his death and resurrection. Jesus is stronger, which means his kingdom, the kingdom of God, is here. Which means it matters how you respond to him. You do have to make a decision that ultimately he either is who he says he is or he's not. Either he does it by satanic power or he's doing it by the power of the Spirit of God. This is the decision point, And in fact, Jesus drives this point home with, with clarity and a call to respond in verse 30. Notice what happens. Jesus is still speaking here, addressing this accusation that his work is demonic. And in verse 30, Jesus says, Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. There's two statements here. They mean the same thing, okay? The first way he says it, he draws that line right in the sand. And he says, listen, if you're not with me, you're against me. So you got to decide. Some decisions are bigger than others. This is the biggest. You got to decide, are you with me or not? The second way he says it in verse 30, anyone who does not gather with me scatters. This is why it's about more than just intellectual, like, acknowledgement. Because the the picture of gathering with Jesus is the picture of following him and doing his work. And either you will be with Jesus, following him, doing his work, or you will be scattered. The scattered image is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of the final judgment. And so Jesus says, you got to decide. You're either with me or you're not. I'm either satanic or I'm doing this by the Spirit of God. Either you're going to work with me and follow me, or you're going to be judged for eternity. Some decisions are bigger than others. This is the biggest. And Jesus draws that line in the sand. And he goes on to address what the Pharisees were doing in that very day. Watch verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Okay, let's just pause here. What are we talking about? Okay. Jesus says, basically, anybody can be forgiven of any kind of sin. If you turn to me and you come to me, and the sin that you struggle with, the sin that's in your heart, the sin that's in your past, he says, you can be forgiven of that. Even blasphemy. Remember, blasphemy is cursing the Lord or or speaking negatively about God. So he says, I I can offer you forgiveness for any kind of a sin. But then he says something interesting. He says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, the blasphemy against the Spirit, I think in context, it's very clear. It is the attributing of the miraculous work of the Messiah by the Spirit of God to Satan. Okay, I think you could only do this if you were on earth when Jesus was alive, uh, this first advent. And I think, here's Jesus, and he says, okay, I've delivered this guy from the demon, and if you say that my work, that is actually God's work, Right? Father, Son, and Spirit working together, if you say that work, empowered by the Spirit of God, is satanic, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You are saying the Holy Spirit is actually Satan or satanic, right? and in that accusation, you have made your eternal decision. That's it. So, you're done. I don't believe that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is something that can be You know, committed today. I think sometimes believers read passages like this and they worry that they've committed it. If you're worried that you've committed it, you haven't committed it, right? I mean, that's that's where he is. But he does say, it matters how you respond to me. And although the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I think, was specific to his first advent, I still think he's asking the same question to every subsequent reader of Matthew. Well, have you decided? Have you decided who I am? Verse 32, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the one to come. Some decisions are bigger than others. Jesus' point here in verses 30 to 33 is that if you're not with Jesus, you're against him. If you're not with him, you're against him. Sometimes it's not always easy to tell. This is where it gets hard. Because these Pharisees, they were the religious authorities of the day. They checked all those boxes. They had gone to seminary in their context. They wore special clothes all the time. They did all the religious things. Now, in secret, in their hearts, what they did when no one was looking, it was a totally different story. But what's interesting is that they had to decide what they thought about Jesus. My friend Zwingli makes this observation. He said, "They seemed to the simple people, the most ardent worshipers of God when they were his fiercest foes. They seemed like they were the most spiritual people, and in reality, they were his most ardent foes." This is why we need this passage, because this passage is not just about initially coming to faith in Jesus which if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, there's a message here for you. you got to decide, are you with them or not? I mean, Jesus is saying, if you're not with me, you're against me. So you have to decide, are you going to be scattered and face judgment, or are you going to take refuge in the Son of David? Right? He can pull that trailer. right? So that, that's, that's the question for you. But beyond that, beyond just conversion, we also have to ask the question, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you need to make sure that you actually are a follower of Jesus. Because you could be, you could seem like the most ardent worshiper, and yet in reality, you could be God's fiercest foe. Now let's talk about this and unpack what it might look like in our lives. Well, of course, it could be open rebellion. This is where we shake our fists at God, okay? Where, where we reject the word of God and we applaud sin, We participate openly in sin in our lives, uh, we, we applaud when others do it. We laugh about it. You know, we're shaking our fist at God. You know, God, you're not there. You're a liar. Your word's ridiculous, whatever. You're outdated. You're outmoded. You know, forget it, right? So that's open rebellion, right? But that's, that does happen in our culture, to be sure. But maybe that's not the most likely way we would struggle. We might struggle more with what I call a personalization of Jesus, where basically it's a choose-your-own-Jesus idea, which is really popular in our culture. I will worship a Jesus that I approve of. I'll worship the Jesus that, that I'm comfortable with. right? So you pick and choose which parts of the Gospels that you like. You pick and choose which parts of the Bible are, are pleasant to you and the ones that you've, you like. And there's no actual authority in the Word of God. You are the ultimate authority because you decide which ones matter and which ones don't. There's an intentional rejection here of hard truths or things that you don't like. It's kind of like Thomas Jefferson. You, you remember the story about Thomas Jefferson? He had the Bible. He didn't believe in anything supernatural. And so he took his Bible, and he cut it off the binding, and he, he cut out all the sections that had miracles in the Bible and then glued the rest of it. You can see this Bible. It's at the Smithsonian in, in D.C. But, and then he put, glued the pages all back together, and he had a miracle-less Bible, okay, Least helpful Bible ever, just in case you're wondering, right? But that, like, he was, he was so bold and arrogant, he thought, I can tell what should be helpful to me in the Word of God and what isn't. Brothers and sisters, if you're in that place in your life, you are your God. You're the creator of the Word of God. And so there are things in the Bible that are hard to believe. There are things in the Bible that are confusing. There are things in the Bible that aren't easy to explain. But the minute you decide that you're the one who will pick and choose what Jesus, which Jesus you're going to worship, you've created a false Jesus, not the real Jesus. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're going to edit me, then you're not with me. So I think this is a big danger in our culture. So this personalization, pick your own Jesus, you know, kind of a movement. Maybe additionally, another threat, and this one's very tempting for us, it's quiet rebellion against Jesus. This is not shaking your fist at Jesus, right, boldly. This is, you're checking some of the boxes, the public boxes, go to worship, right? Show up, right? Maybe you've got a Jesus fish on your car. Right? There's, some, there's some other signs. Maybe you wear, wear a cross or something. But in your actual decision-making in your life that nobody sees, but in, in, internally, Jesus is not your Lord. You do what you want to do. It doesn't matter what he said in his word. It doesn't matter what he's called you to as long as people see you out on the externals and you look like a follower, then fine. But in actuality, you're not a follower. You're following yourself. And this is not so much editing everything. It's just more deciding, I'm going to do what I want to do, but I want people to think that I'm a Christian. Maybe you're here, especially at our church, because your family expects you to be here. Maybe you're here because you know people that you respect are here and you think I'm supposed to be here because those people are here. Well, can I just encourage you? that your decision about how you respond to Jesus is the biggest decision you will ever make. And if you're not here for him, then you're against him. If you're not here because not only are you intellectually convinced He's the son of David, but that you have believed and you are now submitting to and trusting in him as the son of David, right? If that's not you, then you're headed for scattering. You're headed for judgment. If you're not with Jesus, you're against him. Quiet rebellion engages in secret sin. Quiet rebellion avoids accountability. Quiet rebellion refuses to make changes in your life, even though God calls you to. As long as you're checking those exterior boxes, you feel good about it. But if we are with Jesus, if we are with Jesus, we believe what he says, we accept his teaching, his word. If we are with Jesus, We follow his spirit by obeying his commands. If we are with Jesus, we submit to Jesus as Lord and make changes when we need to make changes. If we are with Jesus, we confess our sins to him and to others, acknowledging our failures and finding comfort in his cross. If we are with Jesus, we love his bride, his church, right? And we cherish it. If we are with Jesus, we worship Him, we exalt Him and value Him supremely, each day striving to value Him supremely every day in all the areas that we have, uh, all the areas that we experience our life in work, school, family, whatever it is. If we're with Jesus, we serve Jesus. sacrificially. If we're with Jesus, well, we, we talk about him. Share this message of who He is. If you're not with him, you're against him. And this decision matters more than any other. If you're here this morning and you're a believer and you're being convicted that you're not submitting to Jesus in your decision-making, there's only one thing to do. It's confess. Go to the Lord. Go to the Lord in prayer. And it just looks like this. Lord, forgive me for not following you in fill in the blank. Forgive me for how I've been behaving, fill in the blank. Lord, thank you for defeating Satan so that I can be forgiven. See, there's a road for the believer to grow in submission to Christ. In fact, that is our road, isn't it? There's not one Christian who can say here today, "Oh, I've got it figured out, no struggles, total submission to Jesus. No, no. But each day as a believer, we're called to grow in that submission to Jesus. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. This is the decision that matters most. My friend Samuel Rutherford, who was a pastor in Scotland in the 1600s. You know, not a great place to be a pastor in time, turns out. Because in Scotland in the 1600s, there was still a fair amount of religious conflict. And he was arrested. This guy's bad to the bone. He was arrested for a while. And he had to stay. It was like, kind of like house arrest. He had to stay in Aberdeen for a few years. It wasn't a super pleasant situation they had him living in. But he called it Christ's Palace in Aberdeen. And so he would refer to his less than stellar situation. He said, yeah, I'm writing from Christ's Palace in Aberdeen. It was basically prison. And he's like, yeah, I'm in Christ's Palace in Aberdeen. So that just tells you about him. Uh, he just acknowledged, he has, uh, his, his letters are such an encouragement, especially during that time when he was in Christ's Palace. But he he said this, he said, they are not worthy of Jesus who will not take a blow for their master's sake. He said, Jesus is saying in the gospel, come and see. He has come down in the chariot of truth, which he rides through the world to conquer men's souls and is now in the world saying, who will go with me? I love that. Jesus is riding around in his chariot, just saying, who's with me? Who's with me? He gets that from Matthew 20, or Matthew 12, verse 30. Right? If anyone is with me, or if anyone's not with me, he's against me, right? Jesus is going around. Who's with me? Who's with me? Well, are you? That's the decision you have to make. Some decisions are bigger than others. This one is the biggest. Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us reflect on this passage and respond rightly. Lord, once again, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to respond in faith. Lord, we see here there are two roads. Those who not only acknowledge that you are the promised Messiah, but those who submit to you as Lord. And Lord, those who reject your claims. And Lord, we recognize that it is possible to say that you believe and yet to not actually believe. And so we see there's a, an opportunity for hypocrisy and a warning in this passage. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us. Help us to be with you. Lord, if there are those here who have not trusted in you yet, I pray that you would convict them of their sin. Lord, make them miserable so that they can be relieved of that misery. Lord, show them your goodness and your kindness. Help them to see that, that you can pull that trailer their deepest longings, those innermost desires, Lord, that you are the only place they can find satisfaction. Lord, you are the only place we can find forgiveness. And Lord, we ask that you would help help us to follow you by faith, to grow in submission to you. And Lord, help us to recognize that this is a decision that, yes, we have made on a day in the past, but also it's a decision we continue to make on a daily basis, We thank you that by your provision that we don't lose forgiveness or salvation, but at the same time, Lord, we recognize each day is a battle. And we thank you for the reminder that you are victorious over Satan and that Satan and his demons have no power or sway over you. And we need not fear Satan and his schemes, but on the contrary, Lord, we can see through them. We can defend ourselves from them by your word. And Lord, we can follow you by faith. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with hypocrisy this morning. I pray that you would convict them of that struggle. Lead them to repentance and forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that when it comes to this decision, that we would be clear where we stand. Lord, help us to stand with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.